you can turn over to Psalm 3. And we're going to see here an example of meditation from David. He works from his life, from the circumstances of his life, back to the truths that he knows. And we're going to watch how the Lord helps David overcome some tremendous fear as he meditates. As he believes and acts on the truth, his life is transformed. And this is going to be extremely helpful for everybody, for all, for us. I mean, you know, you could ask the dumb question, how many of you struggle with fear? And every hand would go up, you know, in some capacity. If you don't think you do, if you spend enough time, we could probably see, no, a lot of your patterns probably come back to some low-grade anxieties in your, in your life. And there could be a spectrum of, of fear and the way fear works and manifests itself in our lives. You know, it can be those low-grade anxieties where we're not really re- even recognizing that we're afraid of certain things all the way to the full-blown you know, panic attacks or other things that may come as a result of, of deep fear. And so that's, it's relevant to each, to each one of us. And it's super important to really understand how to work backwards from fear back into the Scriptures because fear feels like it's being thrust upon us, doesn't it? When you're in, I, I, I can identify with each of you as you've probably encountered some, some anxious circumstances. We kind of walk into a circumstance and it feels like the circumstances cause the fear in our hearts and that we're sort of victimized by it. We're held captive to the fear. We feel like we're unable to control it and we're sort of determined by those circumstances. And until those circumstances change, we can't not be afraid. But the reality is that our hearts are always responding. And in those circumstances, our hearts actually respond fearfully to them. So if we were to take a biblical survey of of the heart, we would see that the heart is like the mission control center of the Christian. It's where everything happens. And so think about your heart and your mind just being compressed into that word heart. And so... We're always, our hearts are always assessing things. Our hearts are always believing things. Our hearts are always choosing to do things or not do things or respond one way or another. And we often don't perceive what our hearts are doing as a choice because we're unaware that our hearts and our minds are actively engaged in whatever those circumstances are. And so our heart's always talking to us, but we rarely ever talk back to our hearts with the truth. So biblical meditation, you could say, is just kind of bringing the Word of God to bear. And that's, but it's really dangerous if we're, all we're doing is listening to our hearts because the Scriptures say that our hearts are deceitfully what? Wicked. So the only thing coming out of our heart, apart from Christ, apart from His Spirit, is deceit. And so to listen to that all the time is just to be held captive by deceitful lies. So biblical meditation then brings God and his truth into the monologue. And it becomes a debate, right? Without God and his truth, we're just trapped. It's like we're trapped in a dark room. And we don't know the way out. We're deceived by our own hearts. But when his word comes into the picture, when it comes to bear, like the Psalms say, it becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so it's just like beams of light invading the darkness and illuminating it. The lies are exposed, and then the truth sets us free. 
And that's what we're going to see here in Psalm 3. David models this practice for us. And it, uh, it's, what's significant about Psalm 3 is that typically when I think about meditation, I think, okay, I wake up early before everybody. It's quiet. I've got to get my coffee. You know, everything has to be just so for me to meditate. You know what I mean? Can anybody identify? David, we're going to see the circumstances that David was in as he's bringing the truth to bear in his life. And these are absolutely terrifying circumstances. Things were not as they should be in David's life. And so look at the superscription. That's where this first line here, before verse 1, the heading of this psalm. These are ancient headings. And so they're called superscriptions, and it gives us an idea of of the context of this psalm. It says, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. How many of you know what that's talking about? Just raise your hand. You've heard that story before. Okay, a good number of you. So these are not pleasant circumstances for David. You could write down, if you don't know it or you want a refresher, write down 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. That's the, the description of this story of essentially Absalom's rebellion. It's his own son, and his son rebelled against his rule. And if you kind of backtrack back to 2 Samuel 11, 12, that area, you're going to see that, that this rebellion came as a consequence from the Lord for David's murder of Uriah and the adultery that he had with Bathsheba. And that's not the only consequence. David's kid dies, uh, his, his baby from Bathsheba, uh, his sons murder each other, uh, Absalom tries to usurp his throne, and that's, that's kind of the context of some of the consequences of David's sin. Now, David repented whenever the Lord confronted him through the prophet Nathan. But that didn't erase the consequences of the sin of David. And so these consequences were coming to bear in his life. And in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, Absalom would wait at the city gate. And he would kind of intercept those people that were coming to get judgments from David, his dad. And he would sort of influence and manipulate and turn them against David as they would come to the city. And so verse 6 of chapter 15 said that the author said that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's the, the language that the author uses there. And he began to steal their hearts and then he conspired against his dad. Once he kind of had the populace, he had the popular vote, he kind of made a quick move against his dad. And verse 12 said, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So there's this mounting opposition against David from his own son. And David's own men, as he fled the city, said that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And we know just from other data in, this, in that, those chapters, you kind of piece it together, there was probably, there was well over 20,000 men alone that made, made up Absalom's army. And David didn't have near that number of guys that, that kind of went out with him. And so David assessed the situation. He understood that his family was in danger. And so they fled the city. He got out of there. And as he, as he was leaving his city, the, the city of David, where he was installed as king, he's leaving that city. People from Saul and the previous reign of Saul that were still sort of devoted to Saul's house would come out, and they were just ridiculing him cursing him 
And David, the king of Israel, just left in shame, left his own city in shame. Nothing he could do about it. He lived in the wilderness while Absalom and his army sought to kill him. And so that's the circumstances of our psalm here. And it's so important to see how David's going to respond in this, these, these terrifying circumstances where he's, he's hunted, he's bearing the grief of the death of his own child. I mean, all those things are coming to bear here in this in the psalm. And he models for us this practice of meditation uh, in the midst of a, a, a battle, a sin-cursed battle here. And I, it's kind of like meditation in HD. And so our... Our little thesis here, we're going to see six ways that David is an example for us in the meditation process. So, six ways that David's an example, he's a model for us in this process of of meditation. And what I'm doing here is I'm just sort of skimming off the top. This isn't going to be like an exegetical outline. This is more of a, I'm drawing out principles from this text and, and using them as a model. So... Hopefully it'll be pretty self-evident. The first thing David does in the midst of these circumstances is he articulates his fears. And if you want to flesh this out, you might say he articulates his fears before the Lord or in the Lord's presence or in prayer to the Lord. And really this whole psalm is is just in the context of prayer. So if you're thinking about meditation, don't think about meditation sort of devoid of God, like just you and the truth. It's meditation in the presence of God with God's truth. So God in his person is being brought to bear in your life situation. So this whole thing is going to happen in the context of of prayer. Look in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And so right out of the gate, David's articulating his fears. So what's he afraid of? Well, he's afraid of the increase and the empowerment of his enemies. That's the idea here. How many are my foes? Okay, these these foes are are many. There's a multitude of them. And they're rising specifically against me. And that's exactly what we saw in in the, the historical background with Absalom and the men. And so they're increasing and they're empowered against him which is really in direct contradiction. It's If you were just to read the psalm, you read Psalm 1 and then you read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is this grand promise to the Davidic king that he's going to reign over all the nations and he's going to crush his enemies. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? You know, it's, it's foolish. The Lord sits in the heavens. He's installed the Davidic king and he's going to reign through the Davidic king. And Psalm 3 comes as like this jar of like, whoa, okay, there's thousands of enemies coming against me. I'm being run out of the city. People are saying in my soul, there's no salvation for me in God. So what do we do with that? So David's articulating his fears. And in particular, look in verse 2. There is a soul-rattling lie that's coming at him. And it's this. Many are saying, of my soul, or really, to my soul, to my inner man, there is no salvation for him in God. This language of him them saying it to his soul means that this statement has a penetrating effect on David. Meaning it's rattling him to the core. And the fear is that he's beyond the deliverance of God. He's been forsaken by God. There's no salvation for him in God. That's the idea. 
He's beyond the help of God. God's not going to listen to his cry. He's left out to dry. He's, he's hanging out there. And think about the temptations for David. I mean, he's sinned legitimately. And these are consequences for his sin that he's experiencing. And so these are serious temptations for him to think, I've been forsaken by God. There's no more salvation left for me. I'm just going to go out and be destroyed out here in the wilderness and die. And so David's articulating his fears. He's saying these things are happening and he's, he's articulating them to the Lord. And so I just asked the question, what are we tempted to do instead of identifying and articulating our fears? Whenever as believers we're in, engaged in the same kind of soul-rending fear. Well, lots of times we don't even recognize the real that's going on in our head. There is a real and it's going and we're not recognizing it. And we're just continuing to say the same things to ourselves and believe the same stuff. So we don't articulate it. Or we'll try to immediately fix the circumstance that we believe is causing that fear. Right? It's like, we've got to fix this thing, and once this thing is fixed, we're done. I'm better. I'm good. David doesn't do that here. He doesn't immediately try to fix the circumstance. We ignore the fears. Another thing we do is we just ignore them, thinking that they're just going to go away on their own. Just, okay, I know I'm afraid, but I'm just, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to ignore it, and it's going to go away. And that, those are typically some of just the, the off the top of my head, things that we sometimes do instead of taking the time to actually identify and articulate what we're afraid of. And when we do this, when we actually start to spell out what we're afraid of, it allows us to examine those things. It allows us to kind of get outside of ourselves and be- become a dialogue versus a monologue. So, David's laying these things out, and I often think it's helpful to write them out here. Just write out what are the fears, what are the lies behind those fears, are there lies behind those fears, and what are they? Let's start, let's start diagnosing that. And David essentially does that very thing. He's identifying. He knows what's rattling his soul, and it's this statement, there's no salvation for him in God. And so what does David do? The next thing he does is he believes particular truth. So he knows those truths that are particularized for his situation. He brings them to mind in prayer, and he believes those things. Look in verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. So my enemies are saying this, But you, O Lord, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. And then, elaboration. A shield, furthermore, you're my glory... And the lifter of my head. So David identifies some particular things about the Lord that are being challenged in his own experience. He says, Lord, you're a shield about me. And this language is, you know, you think of shield. We don't typically fight unless you're, I don't know, a reenactor with shields. Uh, My son might, but you guys probably don't. But in this context, there would be a front shield that would kind of go all the way down to the ground. But David kind of takes the metaphor a step further. And it's like, he says that there's a shield all about him. So around him, over top of him, you think of the Spartans that kind of make their, make their thing, you know, they, they bring their shields up over their head. That's sort of the idea. He's saying, you, Yahweh, as a shield, you surround me. There's protection on all sides. So we could summarize this by saying he's... Believing the truth about the Lord, that he's the complete protector of him. Behind and before and front and top. Nothing can happen to David unless God wills it. 
And David knows that. And so he brings that truth to bear right now. He's a shield. And not only will he be protected by the Lord, because the Lord's promised him that, he will also, the Lord, he says, you, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Meaning, these are sort of synonymous. The, my glory, you're going to be the one who restores me to my glorious position as king. You're the lifter of my head. Meaning, my head is down in shame as I'm leaving the city. And I'm going up the Mount of Olives. And people are deriding me. My head's down. But you're going to be my glory. You are my glory. And you're the lifter of my head. You're the one that's going to exalt me again in your time. Because those are the promises made to the Davidic king. That God would do that. And the only reason he wouldn't do that is if the king forsook the Lord. And David hadn't forsaken the Lord. Okay? David had sinned, but he humbled himself and was repentant. And so there were particular promises made to the Davidic king that he was clinging to here. And he's expressing those as attributes of the Lord. Okay, Lord, you are my shield. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. And so all I want you to see here is that he's connecting... He's identifying particular things that help uh, dislodge, if you will, that lie from his soul. Does that make sense? These are particular truths that are helpful in this, in this moment. There's no deliverance for you in God. Yes, there is. Because he's my protector. He's my exalter. He's the one that's going to restore me. And so once we identify the lies before, once we've articulated those, we can now bring God's truth into the picture. And we should find particular truths or promises that are contradict the lie that we're believing that we've already identified, like David does here. This is just a template, right, for you to kind of fill in in your own particular situation. And so he, he lays these truths out, but he, but he also grabs a hold of them by faith, volitionally, okay? Volitionally, not necessarily emotionally. Now, what do I mean by that? Why am I making a distinction between volition and emotion? Well, because emotions don't, aren't always there. I'm sure David's stomach was in knots when he was praying this, right? So he didn't have peace like a river, I would assume. I assume that there was like a buzzard in his stomach. But David is volitionally saying, I'm going to lay hold of this by faith. My will is going to grab onto this regardless of what my emotions are doing. And I'm, I'm laying hold of this, of this truth. And so David, what he's doing is he's believing a particular truth and then he acts in accordance with the truth that he believes. He acts in accordance with the truth that he believes. Hey, you guys are going to have to hang with me on this one because it's, uh, I've kind of broken it up a little bit. And if, you're, if you like Hebrew, come talk to me and I'll tell you why I did it like this. Uh, but I think it's, it would kind of derail us if we, if we go there. This really, verses 3 and 4, are like the... Uh, no, 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 are the core of this psalm. It's like the very center of the psalm, and it's meant to be understood together. David acts in accordance with the truth that he believes. So look in verse 4. First action. I cried aloud to the Lord. And the result, he answered me from his holy hill. Next action, I lay down and slept. The result, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
So David acts in accordance with the truth that he believes. He does two things. He's laying hold of the truth volitionally. And so then, on the basis of that truth, he cries out to God for help. The person who doesn't believe that God is your protector and provider doesn't pray. They don't cry out. Because there's nobody to cry out to. There's no faith that's operating. The person who believes that prays to this God to help him. And that's exactly what he does. He cries out to the Lord for help. And there's a a sweet little statement here that he answered from his holy hill. That means from Jerusalem. So David's not in Jerusalem. David's out in the wilderness. But he's saying, the Lord still hears me. And he's answering me from Jerusalem, from his holy hill where the Ark of the Covenant is still at. So just beautiful imagery here that the Lord's not been forsaken. Again, just faith stemming out of that. Now, what is this answer? That's the question. The answer is going to come in verse 5. He's going to describe how the Lord answered his prayer. He laid down and slept, and then the Lord answered it by waking again because the Lord sustained me. Meaning, he prayed to the Lord that he would be preserved. He went to sleep. He woke up the next day and wasn't dead. So the Lord answered that prayer, sustained him in the in the wilderness, kept him from being killed by the greater army of Absalom. And that's the second thing he does. So he also cries aloud, but then he acts on the basis of that prayer, and he goes to sleep. Think about that. What would you do if you were in the wilderness being hunted? Would you sleep? Probably not. I mean, I would, unless I was like buried in a hole somewhere. You know. He just, he is kind of essentially is just saying, I laid down and slept. I trusted the Lord. I put all that on him. And as king who's hunted, forsaken, I slept. Trusting that I'm going to be sustained. And that's what happens. So David acts in accordance with the truth that he believes. And we should have particular actions that are tied to our faith in God's truth. So as you're meditating, as you're, as you're breaking up the lie, as you're putting the truth in your mind, there should be with that truth an action. So every time you do this action, whatever it is, you're saying to yourself, I'm doing this because I actually believe God's word. That's why. This is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and kind of grind it out and, and sort of grow proud in that. You're saying, no, I believe the truth This truth, not this lie. And so, therefore, I'm going to do X. I'm going to act this way. Instead of my own heart. I'm going to believe God's word instead of my own heart. And so, we pray for help, and then we step out in obedient faith. In this case, it was going to sleep. Obedient faith, depending on God to actually help us. Because when you're afraid, it's hard to sleep. And, uh, but David was actually able to, to rest in the Lord here and go, go to bed. So he acted in accordance with the truth that he believed. And then this is where it gets cool. David then experiences a small but faith-building victory. Okay? He experiences a small. It's small. It's not final. Not ultimate. It's tiny. A small but faith-building victory, meaning it encouraged his soul. It strengthened him. It it helped him be sustained for the battle. And this is the same verses that we just read, but we'll, we'll read them again. Look at, look at the result. I cried aloud to the Lord, verse 4, and he answered me from his holy hill. 
I lay down and slept. What's the answer? I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So there's particular answered prayer, a particular obedience here of him just going to sleep, waking back up again, and recognizing that that was the answer to his prayer. That was the Lord's sustenance of him. Now notice what happens in verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So what's the connection between verses 4 and 5 and verse 6? The answered prayer, the obedience that he stepped out there and laid down and went to bed without, without just tying himself up in knots, led to the Lord preserving him, which fueled his faith. For him to be able to say, I'm not going to be afraid of the 20,000 plus army that surrounds me in the wilderness. I mean, this is radical stuff, guys. In the, in the heart of King David here, that's being wrought by the, by the Lord here is through this process of meditation. And it, really the verb could be translated more in the present tense, like, I'm not afraid. Of many thousands of people. So it's sort of like a resolve. Like I'm, I'm not. Because I'm trusting my heart is fixated on the Lord. Out of this circumstance. That he has. He has delivered me from. And so. Really in our Christian life. Observable, observable growth. Encourages us. And fuels our faith. Even if it's tiny. I mean this is just. He made it through the night. You know what I mean. But it's observable growth. He, he went to sleep, found God to be faithful in that. It doesn't mean we don't have setbacks in the, in the Christian life or we kind of go, don't go backwards. But it just means that we're encouraged as we see God answering prayer, as we learn to trust Him and obey Him in that, in that fight. And so, in other words, to put it in, in another Psalms language, we taste and see that the Lord's good. We taste and see that he can't actually be trusted in this. And that fuels a desire for more trust, more growth, and becomes like a snowball that's sort of growing, compounding. And this is a compressed account for David. I'm sure there was a lot that happened in between here. You know, he's, this is a poem. Okay, so he's, he's writing this beautiful literary piece. Um, so this is a kind of a compressed account, but it's really showing the flow of thought here and the, and the, the way that he progressed. And so every little decision to trust and obey Jesus makes the path more familiar. Does that make sense? So if there's one path that's going this way, and that's the path of the lie, and you've, you've trodden that again and again and again and again and again, but there's a path over here now that's a new way. It's going to happen according to the truth with new actions. The more you obey that, the more you trust and obey Christ in that, in that path, the more you walk that path, the less time you're on the other path, so the less time you're wearing that other path out, the more that path's becoming overgrown, and the more you are wearing a new path out to where that becomes habitual, where you go in that direction. So every little decision matters. Every act of obedience matters, and David knows that. And that's why it's so encouraging to him to see the Lord sustaining him in this way. And so David experiences a small but faith-building victory that's sort of the outflow of this meditation process, and that encourages him. That leads him to pray with renewed confidence in God's promises. 
That leads him to pray with renewed confidence or hope, we could even say, in God's promises. It fuels his hope. So when we're, when we're entrapped by fear, we don't have any hope. The hope is out the window. But as this process starts through biblical meditation, the hope begins to build again. And in David's case, it, it sort of crescendos in this prayer in verse 7. He says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. Or we could say, for you will strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you will break the teeth of the wicked. Language there for, for judgment and destruction of his enemies, which are tied in particular to the promises of, of God. So David is able now to pray with renewed confidence in God's promises. So as our obedience begins to grow, our faith begins to grow, that fuels more prayer for an ultimate kind of deliverance that goes beyond just God's protection of David in the wilderness. Do you see that? So yes, he is praying and he is experiencing little victories, little little victories, but those little victories are, are building to this big-time prayer where he's asking the Lord to get up off his throne and come down and deliver him. Once and for all, ultimately, breaking the teeth of those who are opposing him, giving him the, the victory over top of them, and exalting him again. So, that's, that's where this prayer is headed. David wants his enemies to be stopped and to resume the throne in Jerusalem so that God would continue to execute his purposes for the nation and the world through him. That's the idea. And really, we'll talk more about this as we, as we bring it to a close, but this... When you think about application to us, this applies to us as we look toward the return of Christ. So what's our big prayer that we're praying? You know, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. We're looking for that final deliverance from the returning king. And we're going to flesh that out more. That'll be more clear at the end. And so we're looking toward ultimate glorification, and he's promised to finish the work in us and through us. And so as David prays, as this leads to more prayer with renewed confidence, um, David anticipates the ultimate answer to his prayer. And that's really the last where the psalm ends. He anticipates the ultimate answer to his prayer. And so he's, he's confident, verse, six, uh, verse 8, <clears throat> that salvation belongs to the Lord. That your blessing is upon your people or will be upon your people or... It's maybe even a pronouncement. Your blessing be upon your people. But I think what's happening here is he's looking forward to the future. Saying salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to him. It's in his power. He's going to do it. And that salvation, that deliverance is going to result in blessing upon the people. Of the nation in this case. And then through the nation to the nations. Plural. Um, that's the, the big panorama view of God's purpose. And so David's growing in this anticipation of, of the ultimate answer to his prayer. And note, notice that David's in a completely different place at the end of the psalm than he was at the beginning. He was tempted to believe there's no salvation for him in God. Now he's saying with confidence that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
You see that? That's intentional. He's able to confidently assert this. And so what we should see here is that this this process, this grueling process of meditating on the Scriptures, examining your heart, uprooting those lies, getting the truth back in there, living in as, as a result of that, that yields, what that's going to yield in the language of Psalm 1 is fruit, fruitfulness, confidence, uh, spiritual prosperity. And that's what we're seeing here. David in the wilderness with 20,000 plus enemies around him, confident in his heart. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Blessing is going to be upon these people. That's tremendous, right? That is tremendous faith and fruit that's resulting out of this whole meditation process. And so, I just want you to see David kind of in HD as he's modeling for us how he's meditating through this process as, as the king of Israel. And so as we kind of bring this thing together here, we kind of bring it all, all together, David did ultimately return to Jerusalem. Absalom, I mean, kind of horrific, gruesome story, but gets pinned in a tree, spear thrown through him, and eventually that, that leads to David coming back to resume the throne in Jerusalem to reign over the nation. God did vindicate David and restore him after this period of suffering. But flip back to Psalm 2. It wasn't in an ultimate sense. Okay? So David was exalted. He was vindicated. The Lord made good on his promises to David. But even David knew there was something beyond him that a person, a son of his, that would reign in an ultimate and eternal kind of way. And this is really the psalm right before Psalm 3. So... So just look at this. This is ascribed to David in the New Testament. So I, he wrote this psalm. He says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This anointed is the anointed king. Okay? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, that's Jerusalem, my holy hill. So the Lord's answer to the rebellion of the nations is to install his king in Jerusalem. That's his answer. And he says in verse 7, I will, this is now the king speaking, I will tell the decree. Here's the, here's the promises that the, the Lord said to me. Okay, the Lord Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's like installation language, I have made you king. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, this Davidic king is going to reign over all the earth. And that's the intention of the Davidic monarchy from Jerusalem. Now he turns here in verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, meaning pay homage to Him. Come bow before Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So yes, He is judge. As King, He will judge the, the nations. But 
blessed are all who come into Him and take refuge in Him and, and repent and, and humble themselves. That's wisdom. That's joy according to these, for these kings to do this of the earth. And so right out of that, those are the promises. And that's, He's building off of 2 Samuel 7, the promises God made to the Davidic dynasty. But all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, that there would be a son that would reign eternally on the throne of David. Okay? So David, although the Lord made good on his promise to David in particular, the Lord hadn't finished fulfilling everything he had said about the Davidic dynasty. Right? And so there's a lot we could say, a lot we could fill in here, but Christ comes, Jesus comes as that fulfillment and he also fulfills even a psalm like this, of Psalm 3 that we see. His foes rise against him, just like David's did. In fact, many of the psalms are in David's own mouth in his suffering on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Matthew just, Psalm 22, it's just there's allusions everywhere in, at the end of Matthew to Psalm 22 about David's own suffering and how, the, and how Jesus as a pattern is fulfilling this. His enemies rise against him. But the Lord was a shield about him. And as Jesus, if we want to put it this way, sort of typologically, as he laid down and slept in death, he did awake because the Lord sustained him. The Lord raised him up out of that and exalted him in glory at the ascension in an ultimate, eternal kind of way. And the writer of Hebrews says, we don't yet see all of his enemies submitted to him. Right? We don't see that yet. So he ha- his, his glory hasn't been fully realized on the earth. So we're waiting for that. And now as we take refuge in him, Allah Psalm 2, we're blessed in him. We find the blessing in Christ. We follow this same pattern as believers. So our enemies arise against us. They're external, but they're also internal. The indwelling sin that Christ has promised to defeat in us. He's made that promise. He will defeat it. We will stand before Him gloriously changed. But we struggle with indwelling sin. And it's it's almost like it rises up against us, right? Like we don't have any power over it. We're terrified by it. We have external enemies who, who hate both Christ and us. So that's where we're at. But God's promised to preserve and protect our faith in Christ. He's made those promises to us. He's promised to exalt us and glorify us, to lift our heads fully and finally in the kingdom when He comes. And so these are big truths. As we fix our eyes on those, as we meditate on those truths, we can expect progressive growth, just like David. Little victories along the way that should fuel our faith and fuel our obedience to Christ. We're not going to ever arrive because that waits on the, that Christ is going to make us arrive whenever He comes, whenever He glorifies us. But we can expect pr- this progressive growth. And then ultimately, like David, point number six here, we can anticipate this return of Christ, this anticipation of future blessing of the kingdom, where it's fully realized. It's being realized now, but it will be fully realized then whenever He returns. And so that's really just kind of if we kind of take this psalm and fast forward it to the new covenant and Jesus and how it applies to us, I think some beginning insights there. Man, we could talk like, do like a whole semester on just that, but we're not. So, um, so that's, those are just sweet things uh, just to meditate on. And, and again, I just want to end by saying we need each other desperately in this process of meditation. We need to meditate together on the Word of God 
because we help each other identify those lies. We help each other bring the truth to bear. You need older people, people that are beyond you to help you identify those truths. There's like 10,000 plus truths in the New Testament, at least. There's probably more than that. And that can be overwhelming. What particular truths are unique to your situation that would be most helpful to dislodge those lies? That's an overwhelming process if you're just kind of like looking at your Bible thinking, okay, where do I go? If, but if you've got a mature believer that's there that can kind of help you walk through that process, man, it'll just intensify your growth. So um, do it together. Let's meditate together. And so if you have questions, feel free. Come talk to me afterwards or after the main service. And I uh, would love to, love to talk to you guys about this process a little bit more. All right, let's pray.